Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Heart to Hearts. This week I speak to Geddes. Geddes I met at the Golden Jubilee Hospital when I was there on a clinic. We'd kept in touch and I asked him if he wanted to come on and share his story because I'd never heard a story like his before and I want him to share it with everyone. I hope you all enjoy. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Heart to Hearts Podcast and I hope you all enjoy. Hi Geddes, how you doing? Hi, not too bad at all, Stuart. How's yourself? Yeah, fine. Yeah, just well, went back to work this week, so. Well, good. Yeah, so that's a good start to. Big step, like halfway through the year. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, but you keep them well. I'm keeping fine. Yeah, everything's everything's going spot on, and that's my just past my, my one year anniversary on Saturday. That's crazy. Yeah, your that was your transplant. Yeah, that's it. Uh, a year on Saturday already. Yeah. That's mental. That's like so cool. Like, that year must have flown by. Just flown by. Like, just, <laughs> I, I think while this COVID stuff and all the restrictions and isolating and everything, every day is rolled into the next day again. So, yeah, totally. I know it's just been, just been weird as well at the same time. Yep. Yeah, uh, every day is a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, isn't it? Yeah. So, thank you for coming on. and no problem. I was really interested. I really wanted to speak to you because, like, unlike some of the people I've spoken to, I've known for years and through, like, being fellow heart people through being kids and stuff. Yeah. But with you, we met by chance at a clinic in, in our hospital that we go to. And, yeah. I, like, I knew, like, what you told me was just the cusp of what your story is. We'll obviously go into that a lot as we progress through your story. But yes. um, if you don't mind, because you didn't actually find out about your heart issues until you were much older, is that right? Yeah, I was I was first diagnosed, well, I first found out that I had heart failure way back in 2008. That was when I was first diagnosed. What actually happened, um, it was around about March time um, in 2012, and I was actually filling up with fluid. Unbeknown to myself what it was at that time, my legs were swelling up. Um, I could hardly put shoes on because my legs were so sore and my feet were, were too big for everything. I went to my, my GP and he told me I needed to get some more exercise. And then a few days later after that, I, um, I still was not convinced. I knew there was something wrong. Um, and I made an appointment to see another GP, and she actually told me I had a, a stomach ulcer and gave me tablets for, for a stomach ulcer. All right. Then, then, come, the, then come the weekend, I, uh, I was feeling absolutely rotten. I couldn't have breathed properly. I was actually opening the bedroom window to try and like, sniff in cold air all the time. Yeah? Okay. Just, just to sort of get a breath. Yeah. 
And um, I thought, this isn't right. So I phoned the, the sort of G-Docs. As uh, a locum doctor came out, I think he was for Turriff or somewhere. Um, he came out, he just took one look at me, gave me a quick examination, and he got a blue light ambulance to take me straight through Aberdeen. Yeah. All right. <laughs> As I say, at this point, I still hadn't a clue what was what was up with me. Yeah. Uh-huh. And once I was in the the, the sort of ward in Aberdeen, the doctors came around and gave me like an ECG, and then the doctor just came in and told me I had heart failure. No, I was <laughs> I was quite because I, at, at that time I just. I just thought, right, that's it. I'm going to wait to die tonight. Can I? Yeah. <laughs> I, I hadn't a clue what heart failure was or no. anything. And so with that, did they kind of, like, when they announced that to you, did they say, this is the next steps sort of idea, or was that kind of, you need something more serious, quicker type of idea? Yeah, they did. It, it, in the beginning, they did mention transplant, but... It, it was just like a sort of off-the-cuff remark because um, they seemed to be concentrating and, and getting me medicated. And that's what they did. They the, the less just put me on um, pyruzamide and a few heart failure tablets and sent me home. <laughs> that's, that's so, I was getting diagnosed with that. That that had run in your family then that you were unaware of. Yeah, I never actually knew it was it was when I was in for another admission with a with AF, um, and that regularly brought me into hospital. And um, one of the doctors had come through, and he says, "Oh, is Jim Finnish your cousin?" And I'm going, "Yeah, that's my cousin." And he says, "Oh, he's just been in for a clinic. My my cousin actually stays in Barcelona, but he comes back and forth to to Scotland to to get." these sort of checkups for his heart and they had said to me he says oh he's got a heart condition too but neither of the the two of us knew we had any sort of heart problems right um he's in a constant um it's a very mild version of af and it doesn't affect him then Uh but that was when they decided to send us both to the the gene clinic and they found out that we've got missing numbers in our DNA. Okay. Uh, missing chromosomes or something. Uh-huh. And um, he's got one number and I've got a different number, but they tested mine again and I've also got his missing number. So Yeah. Then they traced it. Well, they didn't trace it, but what they, what they actually reckon, obviously we, we both of us have a missing number the same that, it's came down through our mother's side of the family because they were sisters. Right. So it's come down that sort of line in the family. Now, my mother died of a massive heart attack when she was 60. All right. But she had no sort of previous medical history of Nothing any heart. Up. No, so they couldn't, have, they couldn't exactly say that was a link, but the chances are it would have been. Yeah. Sort of medical proof. Yeah. And when they found that off the, with your cousin and yourself, did mm-hmm. that was in two thousand eight? Did you say? Yeah, no, that was that was a few years later than that. That must have been two thousand and ten, maybe I think. And did you feel fine then? Because like you're saying in two thousand twelve, when you started getting like the fluid build up and that, 
So, because you knew about something like that kind of effect in your chromosomes and stuff, did it bother you before you even noticed? Yeah, I was still, I was still actually feeling okay then, and um, it was keeping me stable. I was still at work; everything was was still fine then. Uh, and then. Because when, when I met you, well, it was like well after, right? it was like 2018, I think, was when we first met That's right. yep. in uh, Glasgow. And uh, you were in the clinic and you um, were sitting with, well, I didn't know at the time what it was. There was, like was like a box attached to you type of thing. Yeah, my um, which, Yeah, which you were telling, and I was like, wait, I was like, Oh, I was like, what's what's this all mean? And you kind of went into it. And yeah. so leading to getting into that, with that heart failure you had, and when you were like, they told you to get the medication and just medicated you throughout it, did something yeah. change that they decided that you needed to get a transplant? Yeah, well, what actually happened is um, I went into a really bad episode of AF. Now, this ended, I ended up in Aberdeen in the, the Royal Infirmary. And what was happening was my heart rate was going to weigh up to about 250 to 270 beats a minute. And it was also beating out a rhythm, which uh-huh. is quite dangerous. And there was a few times they actually gave me a drug. I think if I remember correctly, it's called adexine. Now, what it actually does is it stops your heart for like a nanosecond. Oh, right. Oh, it's, it's like a it's like millionth of a second. Yeah. It? yeah. You get a little wee feeling of euphoria uh-huh. just for a second because what it actually does is it, in, in that split second that it stops your heart, it, your heart sort of re-regulates itself. Right, okay. Beating away normally again and slows right down. It's it's basically your your um if you if you've got a TV and it's playing up you'll switch it on and off to get it going again. <laughs> that was basically what I was doing. Basically, what this drug <laughs> this drug did and it switched you off for a second and then switched you back on. And this happened a couple of times and it just kept on. I just kept reverting back into the EF with a with a higher rhythmia as well. And so. That was when the, it was my consultant through there at the time. She decided to phone Glasgow and see if I could be considered as a, a client for going down there. And right. So I ended up in Glasgow in 2016. Oh, okay. Uh, what they actually did was uh, they transferred my straight down for Aberdeen to, to Glasgow. And that was in just at the end of May 2016. And they gave them all the tests for going on the transplant list. And that sort of, I, I, I got a bit of confidence. I was in safe hands there. As you know yeah. yourself, Glasgow, it's, a, it's, a, it's Very, an amazing place. Yeah, it's just like next level, isn't it? Yeah, and it just makes you feel safe and there's just something about it. But anyway, they gave them all this tests and, they had this new drug at the time. It was called Intestro. Okay. There was only two of us in Scotland on this drug because it only had been licensed for about six weeks. Now, 
that seemed to keep me stable for about a year. And then it started playing up again and the the changed all my medication over and that was when I was on the list. I was I was already on the routine list. Right. But because the intestine was working so well, we took me off the list for a while just okay. to see. So did that drug do the same kind of thing as the other one with the stopping your heart? Did it kind of try and slow no, your heart what, down? If what it is, it's like uh, it's like it's a combination of drugs, um, and it just keeps it, it helps keep the heart at a normal rhythm, and right. sort of slows down the deterioration of the heart failure. Okay. Um, no, I'd only been on the list for a month. And I got my first refusal where the chopper me down to Peterhead to Glasgow. And I was in the theatre, but it didn't go ahead because there was a problem with the with the donor heart. And it was a strange feeling. Then. Did you, yeah, so you were ready. It was at 2016? Yeah. You went, in, so you went in for a transplant in 2016 after that month? Yeah, the 3rd of July, just, a, and, just shortly after it. Then. And you were like... You were in theatre already? Yeah, I was in theatre, and the only thing they had to do was sedate me. But they weren't going to sedate me until the heart arrived and they knew it was it was going to be okay. But I was in the theatre for about half an hour and just lying there chatting with the theatre staff. And then they decided to wheel me out to the theatre. And I, I sort of knew then it wasn't going to go ahead myself. No. How did that make you feel with that? Was that just... It was strange. There was there was a lot of emotion actually for the surgeon, and that was when it sort of really hurt me. Mm. I seen how upset they were, and that was quite that was quite shocking to be honest with you. Yeah, then, to see them in that state. Yeah, the, the, it's the emotional involvement that they actually have as well, uh-huh. because it was a big thing to them. As well as for us. No, I know. Well, I, like I myself hasn't. I've not been in like the whole transplant, but with mm. like I've had major surgery and stuff, and I like I'm, can it's a like it is a big oper like it is a big operation. Absolutely, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it. There's a lot of in like little bits that they all need to have ready and whatnot, and oh yeah, so, some... yeah to have that and it but was like obviously it was literally for you was it like minutes you know that was the difference yeah. and then they're like oh no that's it i mean the when you see the the the, the size of the theater and all the equipment it's in the theater it kind of blows your mind a wee bit when you first go into the theater and you're thinking gee where's kid it's it really hits home how big an operation it actually is then. yeah and did you get after that like once they said it wasn't happening did you get sent home? Was that just, did they just say? They, they kept me in for a, a few days because what they actually had was they had a central line in my neck ready for the transplant. Right, okay. Um, and they decided to leave that in and give my right heart cath up in the ward. So they just kept me for a few days and, and did that, then sent me home. Because I, I don't really know much about the transplant, like um, how they all work. Uh, is it a case yep. of you just have to go about your life? So were you still working and 
stuff? Yeah, well, no, at that point I wasn't working. I wasn't allowed to work after that, obviously, because uh, how my condition had right, deteriorated. Okay. And it was like a year after, well, no, it must have been about two years after that, that um, my heart condition got really bad. Um, yeah. I was going into AF, but really bad spells at AF. They had me down in the Jubilee. This was in December 2017. Right. And um, I was in there for the, the foreseeable until they decided how to kind of sort them out. But it was getting to the stages my regular heartbeat was getting really bad. Uh-huh. And I was cardioverted, I think, about four times in the Jubilee on different occasions. Then. So what what does that mean? Does that what what cardioversion is, it's like when your heart when your heart's beating out a rhythm, not like a normal bump, 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 bump uh-huh. rhythm. It, it's it's more like a drum roll. Oh, okay, right. Ushers in it as well, and it's uh, it it doesn't a beat properly. And what they do is they sedate you just for a a few minutes, and they give your heart an electric shock. Oh, right, it's okay. just kind of like if you like the de- you, like the defib type of thing. Yeah, it's like a defib. If you've seen them doing it in the the hospital programs where uh-huh. they have the the, the the pods and they just give somebody a, a jump start then it's the same it's the same sort of idea as that and um what that does it's just like it's it's a, a bit of like a drug that I told you. Uh-huh. It just resets your heart. Now it can last for a, a while or it can last for a short time. It all depends on the worsening condition of your heart. So at that point I think that was when they realised that um, with the amount of cardioverting they were doing, it wasn't making me any better. No. Um, It wasn't going to stay in a stable sinus rhythm for any length of time. Right. So that was when they confronted me with the idea of having a LVAD put in. Yeah, so for for people who don't know what that is, would you care to describe... What's yes, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like, like myself, I didn't know when I met you, but um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I know now. But yeah, if you don't mind, just for anyone that might not know what it is. Yeah, no problem at all. An elvod, um, it's actually like a, it, it's a, a left ventricle assist device. Now, what it actually is, it's a, it's a stainless steel pump that is attached to the left ventricle of your heart. That's usually the one that goes all out of shape when you've got um, dilated cardiomyopathy. Now, what it does is they fit the pump onto the heart and they bypass right up into the the aorta. So the blood is being pumped around your body by a direct flow pump rather than... Your heart still beats, but very mildly, and it's the pump that does all the work. So this is this is controlled by there's a, there's a controller that is set up to the sort of speeds and 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 the reactions of your body. That's all set before they actually plummet into you. All oh, right. 
with various methods of testing and they know what what each individual person needs. All that you do with your sort of weight and your height, etc. They know exactly what speed to run the pump at, and and you've got like sort of two batteries that are interchangeable. You can only disconnect one and change another. You you can't change both of them at the same time. All right, okay, yeah. Would stop the power, and the oh. pump would. And if the pump stops, that's, that's a disaster. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's not advised. Uh, no. What actually happens with the pump as well, because it's uh, there's not actually a pulsing option with the pump. It's right. a direct pump. So you have no pulse. So um, I can't remember. Did you, ever, did you meet Professor Roy Gardner? No, I don't recognise that name. No, well, he's he's one of the consultants at the Jubilee as well. And when I was in, this was later on, when I was in um, sort of full-time, the... Right. He used to have me um, meeting all the students every day. He had a fresh butts of students. And what I used to do was uh, disconnect the belt and put it behind my back. Right. And the students would come in and they would have to examine me. <laughs> just, being, just being cruel to them. Fantastic <laughs> to see students trying to find a pulse. And then... It was whether they were going to lie to him and say they found a pulse, or they were going to be truthful and yeah. they said they found a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, that's basically the, the the pump just pumps your blood around your body, so it, it perfuses all your organs better as well compared to having the heart failure. Yeah. Because when your heart's not pumping properly, obviously with the the dilated cardiomyopathy, your other organs are not getting fully perfused. Then they can they, they kind of get a bit of a knock as well. Then uh, yeah. when you've got Alvado and you've got a full supply of blood flowing through your body. And it oh, helps Yeah, okay. So it would obviously help everything yeah. rather than what well, it wasn't happening before. Yeah. So you were it actually made you feel better. Then. Uh-huh. And you got that, at the, when did you get that installed, did you say, at the end of 2017? It was February 2018. That I oh, got February, that. Okay, right. And, yeah, because yeah, with that getting installed, that was obviously quite a big operation then. And yeah, it was a, a ten and a half hour, wasn't it? Yes, that's, that's mad. Like, cause, yeah. Oh, just crazy. Yeah. And that, so you, when you got that done, you did you know a big difference straight away because uh, I'm guessing your heart rate went from 200 down. Yeah, my, my, my sort of heart rate and everything was sort of more regulated. Obviously, in the first few weeks, I didn't feel that great because you're still recovering. You were, um, you'd been opened up, so you uh. were still feeling. Then. And what actually happened with, with mine, it was like about three days after. The operation, I was up in the, and just still lying in my bed in the ward, and I heard this big crack, and I thought, you know, I was looking around the room to see what was, if someone had fell, and then never noticed anything, and then 10 minutes later, one of the nurses was in the room, and this big crack went again, and she went, what's that? And I says, I don't know, I says, this is the second time I've heard that, I says, but 
I've got a funny feeling that's coming for me. And oh, that, geez. <laughs> and uh, she went away and phoned for the surgeons. They come up and they had a look and what they had found was is the wires that they had tightened my breastbone back again. Oh, okay. It all opened off. So it was oh, actually right. my, the two sort of levels of my chest on each side moving and that was what was oh, causing goodness. Crack. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so I walk into, into theatre and uh, sort of do the wiring again. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh. But it's, it's just one of these things. Yeah. It, uh, it, it, it can happen. But, <laughs> uh, no, I did. I started feeling better to the point that I came out. It was mid-May that I got out of the Jubilee. And... During mid-June, I was stopping building the walls to my driveway. Okay. Um, obviously, I had to be careful that I didn't knock the box or the wires or anything, yeah. but uh, I had the physical strength to, to lift breeze blocks and mix cement, and, which I never had before. Um, no. Well, I did earlier on in my yeah. life, but obviously we... Ever since I had the heart failure, things started to deteriorate. But that's how better I felt after getting the the heart pump fitted. Yeah. So you got home and obviously you were like everything was smooth with the black again happened and you went home. And how did you come about to going back in? Was that? I to go and back in because. Um, were like well you said it was you said it was me when you yeah came out and I, I'm trying I can't I'm trying to remember exactly when I was in and yeah. I I want to say August I went for my it was one of the times I was up in that clinic yeah and been quite unwell for most of 2018 and I was supposed to be getting started on new medications in August I think it yeah. was and I went in and. They said they couldn't give me the new medication because they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. So oh they, yeah, yeah. So they put the whole thing on hold, and yeah, I think that was the first time I'd met you. But I don't think we'd properly spoken. Like you were just in that waiting room in that up in that clinic, and so at that point, were you just in for a visit, or was that when you got told you had to? No, no, I was in that time. Um, I would have been in. What you you got was you got the the right heart catheter, and what it actually does is they can put it into the four chambers in the heart. Okay. And they take a pressure reading, and obviously, when you've got heart failure, this is how they sort of sort of gauge how urgent you are for transplant. Right. Where your pressures, but your pressures have still got to be up enough to be able to get a transplant. Okay. To be dangerous, you need a transplant. Yeah. Because you got that, the LVAD, the, and that was obviously, that was just something they gave you to hold off until... Basically, basically to keep it was alive. Time for, time for the transplant. Yeah. Time for transplant, yeah. Now, normally with the, the LVAD, put the... You're on the routine list with an LVAD, the heart pump. And you can be on there for 
several years. I mean, I know some patients that uh, there's one in particular, I think he's, he must be about nine years, he said, an LVAD now. Oh, um, right, okay, so it can be uh, long-term then. Yeah, it can be, but they didn't normally use it for long-term. What it actually is classed as, it's classed as a bridge to transplant. Okay. Um, it's usually put in as a sort of temporary measure, as I say, Usually up to maybe about five years is is what the 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 sort of gave you on a VOD, um, um, and hope to get you transplanted within that time. Um, uh-huh. um, but as I say, for some people, I mean, this person in particular, he doesn't want a heart transplant, um, no. so he's happy enough to to live with the device. He's living a quite a good life with that anyway. Quite happy, so. He's got the intention of, of having one, so... And with yourself, uh, was that, like, were you ready? Were you, like, when you got the Elvad, you were kind of like, right, hopefully soon we'll kind of get the... Yeah, yeah, basically, that's... Um, I was just thinking, well, this is the, the sort of final step before a transplant. Um, but little did I know that the Elvad was actually going to play up a little bit. Oh, okay. Uh, and sort of catapult my sort of onto the urgent list. Um, All right, okay. What actually happened in um, 2019 was it was June, and it was the first week in June, and um, I started getting a wee alarm on my pump. See? Now, what we've got, I mean, well, you're sort of trained how to deal with various alarms, and you're changed. You're you're trained how to change the whole control unit in an emergency situation. This is even before you got the LVAD installed into you. Oh, okay. You had a lot. You had a lot of um, practicing with the perfusionist, the biggie, your false cat, and uh. Uh, you 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 had to be very rapid and being able to. To change everything before they, would, before they would even consider giving you an LVAD. Right. You had to do all the sort of training with it first then. So my one had started alarming a wee bit and the, the figures on my um, LVAD were changing. It gives you like this sort of pump speed and that was starting to change a bit rapidly. So going Glasgow straight away, they said, right, come down, we need to see you. So actually, I drove down. Um, All right. As I said, it was about a four-hour journey for, for Peterhead down there. And when I got in, actually was happening to my, the, the, the reckon the pump had started to clot. All right. And this was what was called, causing the fluctuations in speed on, and the alarming of the, the pump. So, what they had to do was um, give me the thrombolysis drug. So basically what it does, it turns your blood to water and it disperses any clots that may have been forming in the pump. Warfarin type of idea. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a, a super-sized version of warfarin. <laughs> it's, it's lethal stuff. And they gave me that and 
to say I felt unwell was an understatement. Oh, really? I, I had a shooting pains in my back and my stomach. Just everything. I was doubled up in agony. And I bit my first sort of CT scans and all that afterwards. And then within about a week, I was fine. Then uh-huh. everything was in, I sort of had returned to normal. So they let me go home. And two weeks after, this was into the third week of June, the figures, the alarm started going off in my pump again. Oh. And the figures were going haywire, but they were creeping up a lot faster than they were the last time. Uh-huh. So as soon as I phoned the, the Jubilee to let them know, they were like, no, we're not in your driving doing this time. We'll get an ambulance. So we got a blue light ambulance all the way for Peterhead. Oh, straight and uh, <laughs> and uh, when I got in, when I got in there, um, they were sort of all prepared again with a thrombolysis drug. And um, it, this was the second time in within that uh, sort of three week spell, and it was a Sunday, the same as the original one. So the the, the they call it Super Sunday down there now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but the the second one was um, a lot worse. Uh. They they gave me the thrombolysis drug. Now that had a a really bad effect on me. Even worse than the first time, then. Uh, really worse than the first time. That's when they again I had to get my CT scans and everything again mm. because what they actually thought was clot had broken away and killed off my bowel. Oh, right. Because the, that's one of the things that they are scared of when you give you the thrombolysis drug, that it can break up a clot, but sometimes it doesn't break it up small enough to disperse. Oh, okay. I had to get all the various tests and everything through through that. And I was about a week again then after, after this bit. What they, what they did was, um, after that week, my kidneys weren't functioning properly. So they had to put me into intensive care. Um, and I was in there for four weeks on a, a sort of kidney dialysis machine to take over the running of my kidneys uh-huh. so that my kidneys could actually rest and start sort of regenerating a wee bit. So this machine basically it took my blood out my body, pumped it round this machine and put it back into me. So it was like sort of filtering the fluid out my blood that my kidneys, doing the job of the kidneys, basically. Right. So there was just great big bogs filling up my water all the time, so they had to be changing this machine all the time. So, but because um, my kidneys still weren't uh, like I said, 100% after this four weeks, that's when they decided to put in a, a vote and it had to be decided by the seven UK transplant centres okay. to whether I got on the urgent list or not. And they just needed a, a majority vote, but they got a unanimous vote. Oh, wow. They they put the vote in on the Sunday, I think on the 
Sunday evening they came back and said they'd all all voted yes to get me on the, the urgent list. So that was me on the on the urgent list um, for then on forward. So what the what they did is they because I was back to feeling well again, they didn't want me going home to Peterhead because that was going to be too far away. Yeah. In case and happen to the pump again. So, but as I say, they wanted me to they wanted me to stay in stay in Glasgow um, until such a point that I got a a transplant. So I was put up in the hotel, the Beersmoor Hotel. Yeah, the one that's joined on to the hospital. It's great. Like yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, that was that was my home. And was that like because so that? You were down in Glasgow, obviously, because you had the complications with the pump. Yeah. So they did they decide that you had to stay there and then? Yes. Yeah, that so was you, it. you obviously would have had nothing with you then. No, it's that my son had to come and take a suitcase full of bits and pieces down to my and, Um And you had no idea so, how long you were going to stay for either. No, well. It was you're you're waiting on a transplant. I mean, you can wait for donkey years. I mean, it was four years, four years to me in twenty twenty. You know what I mean, so. Uh, um, so that was in June twenty nineteen. Did you say it was when that you first yes. went went into the hospital? So um yeah, and then that was you. That was you. Just and you weren't. Were you even allowed to go? Out and about, were you? Oh yes, I I had uh, I had an absolute ball of a time when I was Glasgow. <laughs> I was I was going out every day, um, just getting the bus, maybe up into the the city centre, and I walk about, doing a little bit of sort of touristy stuff, going and seeing places. Uh, so they never restricted you to the hospital grounds, and you know, in one of the cases you had to stay. I was, I was going to concerts. And I was going to ask her. The the staff actually got my old firm ticket so I could go and see the football at Christmas time. Oh really? Wow. It was it was I was actually living a normal kind of life, although I had to stay in Glasgow. Yeah. Right. And can like you were saying your son came down with the stuff. Was I mean, was he allowed to come and visit you then? In the hospital as much as he wanted. Yeah, this was like sort of before sort of COVID had kicked in, and one of the one of the things is when I actually got the LVOD installed at the beginning of way back in in 2018, I had before I came home, what I had was a chronic driveline infection. Now this happened at the time I was in the theatre getting the operation. Okay. There's a it's like a, I'm trying to think if it's, a, if it's the right sort of word. The, the actual cord that um, takes the drive line from your heart to outside your stomach into the box. Okay. The, it, it's wrapped in a special kind of material when it's inside you. Ah. Uh-huh. But after, the day after the operation, they noticed that there was a little bit sticking out. Now, they can't push that back in because therefore they would be pushing infection back into your body. Oh, okay. So they had 
little bit sticking out. It wasn't causing me any problems then. Uh, you, you've got to change the dressing on it every week and sterilise it and everything, but oh, I was fine. But I had to go on, um, I had to take three lots of antibiotics every day. It was a sort of lifelong thing, as, as long as I had the VOD. Right. Once the, the pump had clotted, and they proposed that I got onto the transplant list, onto the urgent list. What they then had to do was change my antibiotics from tablet form to a, a bolus form. So I had a sort of pick line in oh, yeah. all the time. So I had to get my antibiotics three times a day up in the ward, just a nurse had to get just with an injection then. Yeah, and that's then that's where I met you. Was I think was you were coming in to get that done. I think that was so it was like was it morning, lunchtime, and tea time pretty much. It was yeah, the three times. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. I had gone like when I was up in that ward, and I remember meeting you for the first time, and it was kind of like I was up at like ten a.m. or whatever it was for um, my appointment, and you yeah. you were either you were just leaving or. And then, because yeah. I, I had to wait all day for my whole appointment, so I was seeing you three <laughs> times a day, and it was, and like, and that was, I think it was the first time I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, so you must just be up for his like appointment. I didn't know if you were on a yeah. ward or anything. I didn't know much. And then yeah. I think it was, I came up again for another appointment a few months later, yeah. and the same thing happened again. You came were coming in and out again. And you were, so I was like, I was like oh, ah, I'm going to ask. I was like, I'll see what, yeah. what, what he, uh, and then that's how I got to know all about. And it turned uh, out that you were staying in the hospital and uh, yeah. in the hotel, even not even the hospital. Yeah, I used to be a, a, a permanent feature, not day room in the, <laughs> the corner of the sofa. I was used to say it was my bum markets left in that city. <laughs> Because I was sitting in there quite a bit during the day. Yeah. That's great. And that was funny because I was just like, that, and it's amazing because like for like, we'll get in a minute to how long you were actually in the hotel for. Yeah. But like for the times I saw you, I think I was up in like, say, I think it was July and then it was September when I had a, yeah. my procedure and you were there again. And then I yeah. came back in February 2020 for a checkup. And you were still yeah. there, and yeah. like <laughs> that to me is just like right. it, to have like how how did you cope with that? Because that's I, a lot that for like what was that June six six months seven eight months at least when yeah. I saw you in February, and we know you got your transplant in April. But we said at the beginning, I, I think the reason I managed to cope with it fine is because I still had my freedom, right? Now. I met a good few patients in there that they had maybe got to the stage that they were on a constant drip, or in some cases, some of them were on um, a balloon pump. Right. Which final stage before transplant as well. A balloon pump is uh, it's a line that's put up through the groin, up into your heart, and it's a little balloon that inflates inside your heart chamber. Now, when your heart pumps, the balloon inflates and deflates to your heartbeat, but it actually assists it then. So it puts a bit more pressure on your blood flow. Okay. 
because your own heart's not working well enough to sustain a good pump. So they put a balloon pump inside it to pump a better pressure. And it's a case of once you're on the balloon pump and you're in a bed, the only way you're getting out of that bed is a transplant. Oh, right, okay. I mean, I've seen people been a long, long time and they've got a sort of new revelation now that they can... It's been, it's been in the go for a few years, but they've got a tilt table that they can actually stand the patients that's on a, a balloon pump up and get them out of their bed oh, for okay. a, very, a very short walk and then back into their bed. But they've got to take the whole machinery and a group of nurses with them just to have a walk along the corridor and back. Yeah. And they've got to get tilted and they can't bend their leg at all because, oh, because of that. Yeah. The balloon pump has gone up through their groin. And so that would have been a lot harder, a lot really difficult to cope with. But I was okay because I got my freedom. Uh. And I would maybe say, right, I'm popping out, so I'm going to go up into the city centre. So you'd say to other patients, oh, do you want something? Do you want me to get you something when you're out? And oh, yeah. it was kind, yeah. of, kind of kept me going as well then. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, you were, that was you until April. Yeah. Well, like last, was, well, last week, whatever the day was, was it? That was until um, like sort of March when the when the lockdown started. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Of course, you would have still, yeah, you would have been living there. Yeah, so, was yeah, did you get to, you obviously got to stay because they was just. Uh, well, I was the, I was the only person in the hotel. I kept on saying it was almost it was almost a bit like it, it was so surreal because I could and, walk up to the floor and there was not a soul on the floor apart from me in my room right? yeah that's that would be so strange like well, I mean, I, COVID I was, alone it, it's still going on obviously but it's it was yeah. strange for like well, I was at home and it was weird. So never mind you in the hospital or well, hotel in the hospital. And uh, I mean, I was still going back up and forward to the ward to get my my daily. Oh, so you still had to do that? Yeah, I still had to do that. But I could walk for the hotel up to the ward and not see a soul. The hospital was just empty. Oh wow, yeah. that's 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 quite creepy. You know, you know. <laughs> it was really good. I've got little, little wee videos and, and photographs I took. Um, That's and crazy. It was just really surreal. Um, so when you went to get your antibiotics at those times, like yeah. obviously this was before the whole you had to wear a mask and all that wherever you go. Yeah, did you do that my... anyway? Or did they were you just walking in and about and no, they quite a walking in and about because it was just a case of everything went on lockdown. There was nobody allowed in or out of the hospital. And as I say, I was in the hotel, but you know yourself, that's connected to the hospital. Uh-huh. So, so it was just like a case of everything had sort of locked down in, in, in a proper sense of the word. So yeah. but we weren't at the stages about wearing masks or anything because it was all pretty new to everybody. Yeah, because yeah. when I... 
I'd gone in February was when I met you. You were I think you were going back up to your room and I was coming in to the hotel. Yeah. Me and my wife were coming in. And COVID was kind of still happening. It was at, it was at the beginning of it then. Yeah. And everyone was quite not relaxed about it, but they weren't really on edge of where it got to like now. Yeah, no, I don't think anybody really thought how big a grip it was going to take. No, because I was told not to worry about it. You know, like for my condition, they were like, well, you should be okay. Just be, you know, just be safe for your like washing hands and stuff. Yeah, and then as the time progressed, it got a bit more like, oh no, you have to stay at home. Yeah. And... Yeah. Well, that was, I mean, I think fit sort of hot home for me really when I was in the, in the, staying in the hotel as my dad passed away in a care home. Yeah, I I remember that. I mean, it was one of the first reasons I got in touch with you as well was because I'd saw that. Yeah, you, you were on the news about that. Yeah, that's right. They'd contact me because back then it was, I think it was only the thirteenth care home in the country that had got COVID at that time. And as I say, it was, it was all in the really early stages. So, yeah. And that, like, I can't even imagine, like, we don't have to talk about that, you know. No, no, it's but okay. Like, I'm, I, um, I, I, I could easily talk about it. It was just a case of my dad had dementia and he was in a care home. And obviously I hadn't seen him for such a long time. Yeah. Because I was sort of talking you were in, Glasgow. You were in Glasgow, yeah. Yeah, but even from a, from a thought back, even if I had been at home here in Peterhead, I still couldn't have went to see them because of the COVID. No, because right? they locked everything down anyway. They were all locked down anyway, so um, there was no visitors allowed or, or anything, even even in their, when they had COVID and they were basically dying because there was there was nothing nothing actually did for for the the people in care homes. No. Where the likes of if you contracted COVID you would be don't isolate or they would get you into hospital, get you on a ventilator. They didn't do that for anybody in, in care homes because they weren't, a, they weren't a quite sure how to deal with it all. No. It was... But then too, it was too early for them to to see what an effect it was going to have. Right? Uh... Because initially back then it was more or less the older people that were touching it. Yeah, and that so that was because that was really early on then if when that yeah. happened yeah that was in uh, April you got to you that was yeah because I remember seeing that on the news you got to go you got to leave to go to the funeral didn't you yeah it was actually one of the other transplanted patients he'd been transplanted a year previously and he he, he stays in Glasgow um so he he drove me up and went to come back in the same day so right yeah. It was just a, uh, but there was only, I think at that time, there was only six people allowed to the funeral. So it was just a case of up there, the funeral, but the, the funerals were strange still. Uh, I think the point that a lot of people have found over the, the, the COVID pandemic is very little people allowed to funerals and um. there's no and there's no like a proper service and then it's a it's a it's a it's a strange way compared to what everybody was used to before yeah, yeah. doesn't seem right in a way yeah it's a 
it's like a, a celebration of somebody's life. The sort of friends and people have met them and known them over the years. Like people can exchange their thoughts and everything, and you're sort of denied that. No, right? and then in, in your case, it was a case of it would have been so quick. It would have been awful because you'd have thought yeah. it was up and down, and like it was like eight hours traveling, pretty much. You would probably say, and then however long you got up there, that's just. Yeah, like that must it. have been like I can't even like like I, said, I can't even imagine how hard that would have been for you, and especially no, well waiting for your transplant at the same time. But as I say, with, with the whole, it's gone back to everything being surreal again. You just kind of contemplate how quickly everything went from being okay into a lockdown, and everything started going wrong. Yeah, and it just happened so quick, boom, and then it was just like. Two weeks to the day after my dad passed away, I got my transplant. Yeah, yeah that and that's like and, and crazy that because you've been waiting so long and then all that to yeah, happen. All of that not happened right after it as well. And gee whiz, I didn't even have time to think about it. Yeah. No, and it's quite like it's interesting to know as well because with everything being locked down, that they were still because you hear you heard on the news that they weren't like procedures and all that were stopped all the transplants had stopped apart for the heart transplants oh is that what it was with that yeah and i was always told that was like on a daily basis they would keep me up to date on whether the transplant list was going to be postponed for a while or or whatever but uh, thankfully it wasn't it was never postponed and i was the first person to get a heart transplant during the pandemic that's a yeah. that's a quite a that's a good uh, it was, it was thing to crazy. have in a way, you know. That's that's like historical, isn't it? You know. Yeah. Well, it was. Um, I was in the clinic three weeks ago now, and um, Johnny was saying to me because I was the first person to get a heart transplant that that day they had they were waiting to hear word another transplant and. That was going to be 21 transplants that they've done so far, and it wasn't even a year yet. Now, the Jubilee usually do 10 to 11 transplants a year. Uh, and that, that was 21 for the new last month. That's so, crazy. Crazy. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Yeah. And when you got your transplant, then did you say this? 16th, 16th of April? No, 24th. 24th Last. of April, yeah. Oh, so yeah. just a couple of days, yeah. That's right yeah. enough. You would have, because you had the transplant, it would have been however that you got it all done, and you would have went into a ward. And with it being locked down, was that just like... Yeah, well, you know, directly after the, the transplant, the day after I was severely ill, um, I never knew anything about this because I was uh, heavily sedated. But uh, Sanjeev, one of the surgeons, he stayed with me the whole day okay. because the hospital had taken a good bit of time to settle down. It was sort of jumping about all over the place and they were constantly adjusting machinery and whatever, but it settled down in the evening and they were quite happy everything was going to, going to sort of stay in tune. But I was four weeks in intensive care as well. Now, that was basically because my kidneys had taken a hit before 
and there had still been a bit of suffering, but it was because I had the LVOD in as well. Oh, okay. So it wasn't just a, a standard run-of-the-mill, I'm not saying run-of-the-mill, I don't mean it in that way, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, like a standard heart transplant. No. Because they had to take all this machinery out of my first. Oh, gee, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even cost, think about that. No, and this is, this is what they explained to me, caused the sort of issues with the heart the next right. day, right into the next day. It was taking a while to settle. It was like I came for a direct flow system to having a heart that pumped and my body found yeah. that range. There would have been a lot of risk, like worry about it, not like, well, you said it took a while to settle down, but that did not settle down at all then. Would that have been... Because of the body was so used to the LVAD, would that be one of the? I things? don't know what, what they would have done. They would have probably medicated it in some way or get my sedated longer until the until the um, probably filled my full of some sort of drugs that would have made it behave itself. But I had to stay in intensive care for, as I say, the four weeks, and. It was so strange because by that time, obviously, COVID had taken a big effect in the country. Mm -hmm. And when you're in intensive care, you're in a room where there's a nurse in your room 24-7, and they are in full PPE. Now, they had the visors, hats, masks. I could only see their eyes, uh. and that's why I've seen for a whole month with this lots of people's eyes. I couldn't even tell you the names of the nurses, although they had it written on their, their foreheads. I couldn't tell you who they are now no. because all was their eyes. He just saw their eyes, yeah, you know. And that, that would be quite surreal. For four weeks until I got back up to NSD again. Hmm? And with so when you got put up back on you got put up to that ward was were you um, in for long after that? I was in. I'm trying to think. I must have been up in the ward again for another two weeks in NSD. But the strange thing about it as well is I still I was very weak. Right. And obviously still in a lot of pain. The headman looked. You get strong painkillers, you're on like tramadol and and things like that. Uh, and you're you're sort of you're getting your 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 cardio rehab as well. Then the physio yeah. teams getting you to walk. I mean, for the first few days, because I had laying in my bed for a month, your muscles weaken in your legs. So even even trying to walk takes a lot of effort. Yeah? Uh and you've obviously got the pain, your breastbone and that healing, and you've got to learn how to like stand up and sit down. And and because of COVID, they couldn't take you out for walks in the corridor. You just sit there walk in your room. Oh right, yeah. Is every patient was well, tied to confined to your room? Yeah, and I think they're still they're still like just now, although they're lifting the restrictions that they can have visitors now. Yeah. But back then, you're, you weren't allowed out your room. Um, That's crazy, yeah. And um, were you quite, like, you, you would have been aware, obviously, that COVID was happening beforehand. Yeah. But then with that yeah. four weeks in the intensive care, 
did you not you would have known anything really that it got worse and no, I'd always relying on was the, the nurses telling me what was happening outside. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's crazy. They were basically <laughs> telling me that and it was like, okay, so you came to work and you went straight home again and yeah. it was up masking up and everything. I was like, gee whiz. Yeah. Uh, so what, what, when did you get out of the, like, when did you get to go home? It was uh, the second week in June. So you, was when, you've pretty much spent a whole year in the hospital? Almost. I was two weeks two weeks short of a year. And I remember um, Jane Cannon, who was a relatively new consultant, although she had been in the Jubilee before. Okay. She worked there, then she came back. And uh, she says to me, she says, oh, can you keep you another two weeks so you break the record? <laughs> and I was like, no, no. I says, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll easily go home. <laughs> that like a whole like pretty much a whole year is just like uh, I, so surreal, I can't and then obviously like, fair enough for staying in the staying in the hotel. Yeah. Anyway, you did it in the first half of like twenty nineteen. Yeah. But then with the COVID coming into it as well, like Yeah. That's, that's and that's one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you because like that whole story on its own is just Incredible. Never mind all the other heart issues that you had beforehand. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've always thought one of the one of the strangest things about the transplant. I mean, a transplant's a big enough thing to to sort of cope with and deal with as well. But I'd seen so much people in the past, and my sort of four year journey with the at the Jubilee, seeing people being transplanted and getting out and in a normal life again and I hadn't really had that chance. No. Because just I've had my transplant and here's a year down the line and they're just start, uh, starting to ease things open a wee bit again. And yeah. I mean it's... last year after my transplant I got to do nothing. I had to stay inside at the shield. Yeah. yeah. And oh yeah of course that would have been yeah you would have just come straight out and just straight into yeah. your house. <laughs> That's basically it, Ken. I mean, um, you've got to be careful being a being transplanted because you've got no immune system. Yeah. That's just the day-to-day things you've got to cope with. But on top of that, I've got to cope with COVID as well, Ken. I know. And have you had both vaccinations then? Yes, I've had the both you've of them. You've had both got... now. And you're feeling fine. And you're like, and obviously you're a year into your um, transplant. Yeah, how's Dick? Health wise, are you feeling great? It, it, the first, the first vaccine I got, it was about a week after. What I, I felt like I, I was getting the odd thud in my chest. Then, okay, I had told the Jubilee about this, and they said, "Right, we'll get you down here, look." And but they find it is it's it's called an ectopic heart heartbeat. Now, nearly everybody has them, and you you probably have them. I would have had them before, but they're not noticeable. It's just like when your heart like skips a beat, uh-huh. almost the same palpitation. Right. Um, and they're usually not noticeable, but because I was getting this thud effect, it actually made me feel a bit weak after I was getting them. And I could hear them quite regularly throughout the day. So they monitored me and, and said, I have picked up, you're definitely getting it. So we can see this second 
he says the thud that you're getting is you're getting up the heartbeat and it's like one one heartbeat's fine the next one's a bit weaker so the third one is a big strong one because it's right. pumping up body to your chamber and he says that's far you feel the thud so what they did was they introduced a beta blocker and he says hopefully this will put it away and we'll check you at next clinics and and see how it's going but i've been fine with it then that's good and i kind of was doing it the my last clinic there and uh, i told them this will be fine she says well we'll, we'll check you Check you the your next clinic as well, just to make sure everything's settled, which yeah. it was. And then you're looking really, really healthy. You know, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah. Like you look great, uh, and you're obviously feeling really good a year on. And I got a when I came out last year, I got a treadmill, right? Uh, so that I could exercise in the house. Obviously, when they're getting out. Um, um, and a few months ago there, I had a hell of a job trying to get my hands in one, but I finally managed to I managed to get one for this was a multi-gym. Okay. Uh, for the home, I've got that through in the, the spare room. So So you've managed to keep the fitness going, even though you can't go anywhere? Yeah, that's it. Aye. And uh, I recently got myself uh, an electric bike as well. Well, an e-bike. Then. Oh, wow, yeah. So I can go. I haven't been out in it yet. I went out once, and it was a cracking day. And then the weather's been a wee bit of temperament. It's been a bit dodgy, like. Yeah, <laughs> I, so I haven't had a chance to to go out in it. That's like you're obviously. I, I don't know how old, like how much, how long it should take to be feeling good for yeah, a transplant. It, it still takes a while. I mean, yeah. I still get times where I get really weak and tired. Um, sometimes I've seen myself. I had to go to my bed in the middle of the afternoon because I'm still tired. Then. Right. But, I mean, there's other transplant patients. There's people being transplanted a lot longer than me, and they're still feeling the effects yet. I mean, the the thing with transplant is it's 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 a treatment. It's near a cure. Then. Yeah. But if you think about it, the, the quality of life it gives you is far superior to the quality of life you had before you got your transplant. Yeah, because like compare if you can compare how you feel now, even yeah. to before you had the Elvad, like yeah, is it like chalk and cheese type of? Oh, it's I it's it's I could maybe be put run away in the garden, and all of a sudden I would just feel this instant weakness. Then, uh-huh. And then I would hate to sit down and kind of could feel my heart racing a wee bit. And then it would slow itself down and it would be fine. I could maybe be even out for a wee walk. And all of a sudden I would feel really lightheaded and think, oh, gee whiz, and this is it. And that, yeah, you've got that sort of feelings coming into your head. Yeah. Or you could be just even sitting in a chair watching the telly. And then I think it was jumping out of your chest. Then. Yeah. Then it would settle down again. But Every time you had an episode like that, you thought this was it. Um, Gosh, that's all. Then you were getting up feeling that this was going to be the time that your heart wasn't going to settle down in a few seconds. Yeah. Um, and this was going to be your your time. And to not have that feeling at all is absolutely amazing. 
Yeah. That's great, yeah. Fantastic. That's amazing. That's and it's so good to like have the like to come and have you tell this story and Oh no, I'm glad it's ten years. I'm glad you asked me about that, it. And, and I feel that people need to know it and that's why why I wanted to do it, because it's such a great thing and now you're doing so well now. And I and I mean if 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 people can take something from it. Exactly. I mean, yeah, that's I'm all that, that's the reason I did this, it was this cause to help like with awareness and because yeah. like, like my conditions I was like I was born with it and like obviously yeah. you, you were as well but you didn't know what to layer whereas yeah I've gone through why I have since I was born yeah and, you've known since an so it's quite interesting to have the now the story of someone that was later on in life and when they realized yeah. I mean it's uh, the the jubilees asked me quite a few times um and I've been helping them doing a wee bits and pieces about organ awareness, the donations, and and obviously this year, you know, we've we've uh, come into the opt out scheme, mm-hmm. but people are still not fully aware of what the opt out scheme actually means. Then everybody seems to think that they are now on the organ donation list, whether they like it or not, then their organs will be used for transplant. That is not how it's set up. Yeah. You've actually got to register your decision, whether you agree or you disagree. And that's totally up to the individual of what they, what they want to do. But you have to register your decision. If you don't register your decision, they will automatically assume that you have agreed to organ donation. Yeah. At the same time, if you're in the comes to maybe say you're gonna you're gonna pass, you're you're in the category for donating organs, they still need your family's permission. Oh, right, okay. Without asking their permission. So the whole idea of the, the opt out scheme is I've been trying to get the message across, you've got to tell your family. Because at the end of the day, I mean, it must be one of the most difficult things for the family to decide yeah. when asked by a doctor. I mean, I can only imagine, I, I could imagine my donor's family must have known that my donor was a donor. Right, yeah. And with the doctor saying to them before he passed away, right, do we have your permission? And then probably saying yes, because they already knew he was a donor and that was his wish. Uh-huh. Now, had it been the point that he was a donor and they never knew that was his wish, they might have said no. Yeah. See? Because yeah, at a time like that, it is a really difficult time when one of your loved ones is passing and you get asked that question, your your head's all over the place. You're I know, grieving. it's not an easy question, is it? No, and it's, that's why I think a lot of people need to discuss it with their families and tell them what their wishes are. And it would make things a lot easier, possibly, at the time of passing. Yeah, totally. I know. It's like, it's like I... I and myself up for organization like years and years ago because I, I think about it of like 
for my situation, like maybe my maybe my, my organs aren't the best because I'm <laughs> of what I've got yeah, going on. But there might be um, something you use. never know. And uh, it's to think how it can help someone else is how I look at it. Even though yeah. I'm I might not be here anymore, but the fact that I know that it could help another family. Yeah, well that's uh, I I've been uh, officially registered in the organ donation since I was in my early 20s, I think it was about 22, and I've still got my card that I've swapped our various wallets during the years. <laughs> and my card's still in there to this day. This is for so everybody out there that are, they've obviously got reasons for not wanting to donate organs, which is totally understandable. But what you've got to remember as well is if you or one of your family needed an organ that would save their life, would you accept one? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> if you're not willing to accept one, that's understandable that you wouldn't want to donate. Um, but if you're happy to accept it, but don't give, then... Well, then I'd be that, afraid to, to donate as well. Then it's... That's so it's, true, though. Like, that's just how it should be. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. But people do have the choice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and hopefully they'll mark the choice. Yeah, and, yeah hopefully. And as well, like with this chat, because obviously my stuff has been really based on heart, like just conditions, whereas this yeah. one, this is the first one I've done about transplant. So yeah. hopefully I could get the awareness of organ donation as well, you know, and combine the two. Yeah. It's all sorts of organs. I'm I'm just speaking. Um, obviously, we've been speaking about the heart, but it's all sorts of organs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one person passing can save nine people's lives. Then I mean, it's amazing. I know it's so. It's a good thing to do. Yeah. Uh, as I say, you can't take your body with you, again, So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Geddes, for uh, joining me best. tonight and taking your time to do this. No, it was fine speaking to you as well, Stuart. Thank you very much for having me on. And hopefully we'll be able to catch up, maybe see you in the Jubilee at some point. <laughs> or something, Jameson. If not, I'm maybe somewhere normal, maybe not in a hospital for a change. <laughs> yeah, I'm still, I'm still uh, barking for the clinic quite regularly. <laughs> Near as regular as we would be because of COVID, that changed the... Yeah. The clinic times that still working for you. Yeah. You're, you're, you're stuck with them for life now, Ken. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to know. But no, be sure it'd be good to catch up, as you say, without, without being um, <laughs> Definitely. Sometimes, yeah. Take care. Me a bother, Right. Deal take there. care, mate. Bye. Right. Bye bye.